Romans chapter 11. That's where we are now, and tonight we'll look only to part of it because it's just filled with stuff. I'd like you to see in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, that Paul himself introduces the subject. I only want to reflect on what he has initiated, so this is not my agenda, it's Paul's. More importantly, it's God's. And so this is what Paul said, asked, in Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, and here's the question, a God has not rejected his people, has he? And so he's asking that very question. Has God rejected the Jews? And Paul, uh, you know, being Jewish, doesn't wait for an answer. He supplies his own and, and a pretty strong and clear answer. He posed the question and then provides the answer. It's simple. He says, may it never be. Do you have something like that in your translation? So, I mean, I hope so. Uh, this is not, I'm not reading to you the, the Jewish standard Bible. This is, this is what it says. <laughs> may it never be. Another, or maybe you're, if you have a more modern one, maybe it says, no way. That's the same. I mean, when he said, may it never be, what underlies that phrase is, a, is the strongest way to say no in the Greek language. There is no stronger negative. There, there is no stronger way for Paul to dismiss the suggestion, uh, I ask you, has God rejected his people? And if you can think of an English equivalent, maybe it is, no way. Or maybe, are you kidding me? Maybe, I mean, it's something very intense and clear, very deep, clear conviction to dismiss even the, the possibility. You, you know what Paul is saying? God can do a bunch of stuff. Here is one thing you can count on God never doing. He is never, ever going to reject and replace those who are his. Are you his? Well, then this applies here. You see, we're talking about the character of God. One thing Paul says God will never do is reject those who are his own. But then you cry out to Paul, perhaps with just as much uh, earnestness, you say, well, how could you say something like that, Paul? What, what evidence, what support for your position do you offer? And here's what he says. He offers himself, for I too am an Israelite, a, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. I am, in other words, an ethnic Jew. I'm not spiritual Israel. I'm not hocus-pocus this or that. I'm not someone who's, you know, great, 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 great aunt 16 centuries ago, uh, ate kosher food, and therefore I feel like I'm Jewish. I mean, this guy says, I have a pedigree. Are you kidding? I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I come from one of the tribes. The tribe of Benjamin is the same tribe. King Saul came from, in fact, Paul was probably, his Hebrew name was Shaul or Saul, probably named after King Saul, both Benjamites. Paul is saying, here's evidence for my strong statement uh, to the effect that God has not rejected his people. Look 
at me. How are you going to explain me? And the lady whose testimony was just shared with you would essentially say the same thing. She would say, look at me. How could you explain me? If God has rejected his people, how do you explain me, says the Apostle Paul? If he's moved past the Jews, I am a Jew. He didn't move past me. The gospel was still made available to me. I embraced the gospel by faith, just like you, and God accepted me by faith, through his grace, into his family. Now, uh, you would say, well, yeah, but that's nothing new about that. What's up with Paul? Well, everybody knows there's always a few Jews here and there who, who have believed in Jesus in every generation. What's the point? Well, you sort of have to hang in there with me. We're not going to get to it all of chapter 11 tonight, but I think Paul's argument is that the part sort of leads us to a conclusion about the whole, meaning if God has preserved alive today, a, uh, and in every generation, a remnant of Jews who believe, then he must have a plan for the totality of ethnic Israel, and in fact, he does so it says later in Romans 11, we'll get there in a week or two, Lord willing, it says all Israel will be saved. You see, so he's moving from the remnant to the whole. He's arguing from the part to the, to the whole. So Paul makes this strong uh, statement and uh, follows it up with this in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he for new. So here's another uh, argument to bolster his position. One, no, God has not rejected his people. I'm one of his people. I'm an ethnic Jew, and I'm still uh, part of God's plan. But his second point is, God has not rejected those who he foreknew. Now, the word foreknew, foreknowledge is huge. It actually has the sense of foreloved. It doesn't mean just that God intellectually knew of the existence of a particular people group. It means he established a relationship, a connection. He affixed himself to that people group before time. I knew them before, before what? Before everything. I knew them before they did anything good or bad. Therefore... How could their unloveliness, and there's surely plenty of it amongst Jewish people, I admit to that, but Paul's argument is how could their unloveliness shake my love? How could their unloveliness dissuade me from loving them when in fact I affixed my love on them before they did anything good or bad. I, you may not like this word, but it's a legitimate word. I elected this nation for a purpose. This particular racial ethnic group. It was to be glorified through them. I have purposes for them. They've fallen far short. Of course, we got all that. The majority has not accepted me. Absolutely, we got all that. But we can't jump from that to the conclusion that God no longer has a purpose for Israel, the people whom he foreknew. Now, to bolster up the argument, Paul uh, refers us to an incident 
that happened in Israel during the times of someone called Eliyahu or Elijah, Eliyahu Hanovi, Elijah the prophet. And in Elijah's day, the majority of Jews, just as in Paul's day, were ungodly, turned to false gods instead of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul, referring to this, says, Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Elijah, himself a Jew, is arguing with God against his fellow Jews. And in verses 3 and 4, here are his words, quoted by Paul, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left. This is Paul referring to the words of Elijah. It's Elijah saying, I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. And then Paul says, but what is the divine response? What is God's response to him? And here it is. I, God speaking, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Baal was the chief male Canaanite deity who Canaanites worshipped in Elijah's day and who most Jews chose to worship in Elijah's day, sadly, as well. Elijah was disgusted with this. You can understand it. Have you ever felt like, what in the world is going on? Am I the only one who is a follower of the God of the Bible? What is up? Am I the only one taking a stand on righteousness, on biblical values, on God's perspective? Is it just me and me alone? It's, it's, it's something we could fall into. And Elijah did. In fact, it led him to be depressed. And God, in essence, is saying, Elijah, you're making things 7,000 times worse than they are. Because there are 7,000 people whose hearts I have affected to the extent that they're not bowing before Baal, they're bowing before me. Elijah, it's not just you. In every generation, though the majority in Israel thus far have turned from me to false gods, I have always had those in Israel. In your day, Elijah, 7,000 plus you. 7,001 who've been elected unto salvation and who have seen that their worship must be directed to me and to me alone. So in Elijah's day, there was a remnant. And what about in Paul's day? So look what he's doing. He's arguing from uh, biblical history to his day. And so he says in verse 4, uh, verse 5, in the same way then, he told the incident with Elijah. Now he's saying, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time, that's Paul's day, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So Paul is saying, no, God has not rejected his people. Here's evidence, me. Here's a thought. He doesn't turn away from those whom he foreknew. Here's another thought. Even in Elijah's day, he thought he was alone, but that's not true. There was a remnant of 7,000 who worshipped me. And Paul says, and just as it was in Elijah day, Elijah's day, so it is in my day, says Paul. And if I could be just presumptuous a little bit and put myself 
sheepishly in Paul's category, I would like to say, uh, and yes, in my day as well, there still is a remnant of Jewish people, not many of us, but a growing number who have not bowed the knee to false gods and who've realized the only way to be right with God is through the merits of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's based on what he has done, not on anything we could do. So, no, God has not rejected his people. And if he has chosen to preserve a remnant of believing Jews, and he has in every generation, all this indicates that he's not finished with the Jews. And one day he will consummate his full plan of redemption with the Jews. One day we'll find out when, again, as we continue to go through Romans 11. I'm going to camp out on here for a few weeks because I want to. Um, and you will, you will see God's plan uh, for the Jews. And by the way, just a little bit of a hint. If God has rejected the Jews and replaced them, please explain to me the 144,000 in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. It says there are 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. So we know their ethnicity. I'm not interpreting it. I'm just I'm repeating what it says. They're not any other people group. They're 12,000 from the tribe, and then you count the tribes, and there they are. 12,000 times 12 is 144,000. And those are just the Jews who go around sharing the Lord Jesus during the tribulation period. Uh, we have an untold number of Jews who hear their message, uh, listen to it, and accept the one whom they have pierced. They're martyred for the faith during the tribulation period, but thank God they enter into the new Jerusalem by their faith, preached to them by these 144,000. So if God is finished with the Jews, in other words, if God has replaced the Jews with the church, the church is now God's number one agent to reach the world, and he no longer has a plan for the Jews, then how do you account for the 144,000? With all due respect, the 144,000 are not Gentile Southern Baptists. They're not Episcopalians nor Methodists. I mean, I mean they may be because you can belong to any denomination you want. Well, you don't understand what I'm saying. They're not Gentile Christians, the 144,000. So I don't understand. How do, you, how do you get replacement? He didn't replace those with anybody else, and so... That's sort of what Paul is arguing. And he said, don't miss the point, he says. Look, verse 6. It's all of grace. See, if it, is, if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm not bragging about the Jews. I don't think we're better than anyone else. Are you kidding me? The only thing we're better at is squandering the spiritual privileges and opportunities we've been given. We Jews are probably better at wasting spiritual opportunity than any people group on earth. Paul is saying, I'm not boasting about the inherent worth or value of Jews as over against anybody else. It's all of, it's all of grace. And so he's, God's election of the nation of Israel for his purposes, it's all of grace. Verse 7, what then? What Israel is seeking, you know what most Jews are seeking? A way to win God's favor. My people are zealous for it. You could go to Jewish communities today, or as we go to Israel, you could really see it. It's with great passion and zeal that my people try to win God's favor. 
They will wear special garments, even though they look odd and stand out from the crowd. They don't care. If they think this is what God wants from them, they, they will do it. They will, their diet is very, very restricted. You can hardly, I think I was telling you, I sat next to an Orthodox man on the plane coming back from Israel, a young guy, you know, and he was wearing all black and, you know, long black uh, coat, and, you know, it was hot. He had all these garments on and stuff. He had a uh, kippah or a, 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 a beanie. How about that, beanie? That's what it is. And, and on top, but he also had a hat, a hat, like a big felt hat. He actually had a, a cardboard hat box that he was carrying. I mean, this guy is, we have a word, schlepping. He's schlepping all this stuff, and he's, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, he's going to sit right next to me, isn't he? And, 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 and he did. He's got all this stuff. He's got prayer books. We call them Sidorim. He has his prayer books and all that. And then it comes time to eat. Oh, my goodness. You can't just eat. You have to ceremonially wash your hands. And it has to be a kosher meal. So here comes his kosher meal. And, you know, I'm biting into a sausage or something. I'm thinking, holy Toledo, I am defiling this guy just by rubbing elbows with him. You know, and then he has to get up. He's sitting over here. I'm, I'm over here. And he has to get up because there are certain required times of prayer. And he gets together with other Orthodox Jews on the plane to go to a corner of the airplane. And, and they're, they're opening up their sidurim and they're putting on their talit. These are big prayer shawls, you know, and they put it over their heads. It's, it's kind of like a little tent when you can't make it to the to the, to the tent of God in Jerusalem, then you establish a tent wherever you are, even on United Airlines, you know what I mean? And so here they are, they're doing this, all these guys wearing black and hats, and, and, they, and they have side curls, they call them peyote over here because they read a verse in Scripture, they misinterpret it, but they, they think it says you can't shave and stuff like that, and they're missing the whole point. That's a subject for another day. But anyway, they think this is what it takes to be right with God, we don't care what people think, and we don't care what we look like, you know, we're doing all this kind of, and some of them had shoes, they look like slippers, because when you're in prayer with God, you're never supposed to be in a rush or in haste, and you know, I mean, everything they wear, they're having, they wear seats or um, fringes on the corners of their garments, it's like strings, you know, they're hanging over here, and the guy sitting next to me was curling his curls, you know, nervously like this. I, I, was, I wanted to give him a Valium or a smack or something already. Stop curling, would you please? It's curled enough. You're driving me crazy. Anyway, they all get up together, and they got their prayer books, and then they're, they're davening or praying like this. It's called shuckling. They're, they're, they have their prayer books, and they're doing this because when you pray to God, it should be with fear and trembling, not casual. You know what I mean? And I'm admiring this. I'm saying, oh, my goodness. There is nothing my people won't do, won't do, in order to be right with God. Because my people are so filled with pride. They think it's something they can do to be right with God. And they think they have a better shot at it than the rest of us because I'm eating sausage. I got nothing on my head. I can't grow the curls. This is my full-length beard. You're looking at it. You know what I'm saying? And this kind of thing makes me dizzy. So, you know what I'm saying? So this guy thinks he's got an edge over me. And if doing stuff 
gets you points with God, yeah, he's got a lot more points than me. I don't restrict my diet. I mean, if it's out there in front of me, I, you know, that's good. Let's go for it. I didn't have to cook it. I don't care what it is. Let's just devour it before someone takes it away. Yeah, so, uh, so the text says, what is Israel seeking? They want to be right with God. But, but, but what Israel is seeking, look, it has not obtained. Uh, my people have not attained right standing with God. You're kidding me. Well, who have? See, those who were chosen obtained it. Those Jews who were elect to salvation, yeah, I'm using that word again because that's what the Scripture teaches, who God enabled to believe those Jews have found what they're seeking. Why? Because they're not seeking right standing with God by what we call mitzvot, good deeds, uh, self-sacrifice, all the rest. They're seeking right standing with God through the merits of God's only begotten Son. There are two paths to righteousness. One is you do it. The other is God did it for you, and you accept it. That's better. Why? Because the first path leaves you lost in the woods. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even these zealous, sincere, devoted, orthodox Jewish men, even their good stuff falls far short of the glory of God. You see what I mean? And so, so what they're seeking, they haven't found except, except those, whom, those Jews whom God has chosen. And what happened to the rest? Look what it says. The rest were hardened. And this explains the Jewish situation today. How could it be that the Jewish people, I'm asked this all the time, uh, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the Bible is Jewish, the disciples are Jewish, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's Jewish festivals, Jewish temple, Jewish Jerusalem, you know, all this kind of thing. Uh, the words of uh, Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah entrusted to the Jews, how come they don't get it? Because they've been hardened. And you know who's hardened them? God himself. Wow. That's a tough one to swallow. God did... God did the hardening. Look, verse 8, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Now, my people are not stupid. We're very literate, intellectual, philosophical, reflected. We are a well-educated people group, by and large. So it's not an IQ deficit. Uh, it's something else. We have a spirit of stupor. We're confused in our thinking. Uh, the simple gospel message does not sink in. It doesn't get through. We can intellectually sort of get a hold on it, but it doesn't get a hold on us. It doesn't resolve the state of confusion we're in and which God has thus far imposed upon us. A spirit of stupid eyes to see not. We have eyes, but we don't see what is obvious to you. <laughs> we can't see what God has made so obvious to you because he has blinded our eyes. And not only 
that we have ears, but they hear not. Like everyone, we have ears, two of them, and we we don't actually have a hearing problem except when it comes to spiritual truth. God has plugged up our ears. Our minds don't work well. Uh, Our eyes don't see what they ought to. Our ears cannot hear what's, what's being spoken to us, and this situation exists. Look what it says. Down to this very day. We have friends in Israel, and they not only have been exposed some to the gospel, but they can share the gospel (laughs) word for word. Some know Scripture, Old and New Testament, better than most of us. I'm looking to some of our friends here, uh, one of our, uh, I don't want to use any names, people over there, uh, they can attest, no Scripture better than most Christians. It's just unbelievable. Yet he, he has eyes that see not, ears that hear not, and a mind that cannot. I bring, Bill, you, you know who I'm talking about as well. It's a mystery. We, we all shake our heads. How could it be that he is not a believer? How could it be that she is not a believer? We don't get it. But this gives the explanation, don't you see? God. Ha- but you say, now how could we hold the Jews responsible if it's God who hardened them. Well, hang on. Because of their self-hardening, God has imposed what we could call judicial hardening. God didn't out of the blue impose eyes and ears that are stopped up and blinded on the Jews. Out of the blue, because Jewish people have forsaken him, turned from his revelation given to them First, because they have hardened themselves, God is saying, he doesn't impose himself on people. Did you know that? As strong as he is, he doesn't do that. He's gentle like a dove descending. And in light of the self-hardening by my people, God has, as judgment, allowed them to remain hardened down to this very day. And this was even prophesied by David and others. Look, verses 9 and 10. David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap. The table from which they should sup and be nourished spiritually. Let it become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Well, you look at this hardening of the Jewish people and you you wonder then, How can Jewish people then be saved? And here is the answer. Only by the grace of God. (laughs) So that's the same for everyone, isn't it? It's a miracle performed only by the grace of God. God has to overcome human nature to enable us to be convicted of our sin, His judgment, and His means of righteousness. It's only by grace that a Jew, it's only by grace that a Gentile can be saved. Nobody apart from the grace of God can see God. So, uh, does this removal of Jewish blindness happen? And Paul says, yes, look at me. It happened to me. And I might add, yes, and me. And where's Harry? 
Harry, I missed you last week. Okay, there. <laughs> uh, and Harry, in his 80s, the Lord opened his eyes to behold his own Messiah. Last week, maybe she's here tonight. I don't want to embarrass her because she's brand new to the faith, just a few weeks old. A Jewish woman also had her eyes wonderfully open. Not many, not many, but down to this very day, by grace, <coughs> God is still opening the eyes of some. By the way, how does he do it? He does it when wonderful Gentile friends share the gospel. That's how. That's how. So, 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 so some insist, in spite of this evidence, that God is through with the Jewish people. It's simple. The argument is this, because the Jews have rejected Jesus, Jesus has rejected them permanently. But Paul says this in response to that, verse 11. I say then, they didn't stumble so as to fall. You know, you stumble. You trip over something a little bit. But if you don't go down, you can regain your balance and press on. That, that's what he's saying. Oh, yeah, they stumbled. You know, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Jesus, the Messiah. They didn't recognize him to be their victorious Messiah. I mean, he was crucified. He doesn't look like a savior of anyone. So they stumbled over Jesus. You see what I mean? But they didn't stumble, this text says, so as to fall. So it's not a permanent crash. It's a temporary stumbling. They didn't stumble so as to fall, did they? Now look at what Paul says again in answer to his own question. May it never be. It's the same strong form of negation that he gave us in the first verse. May it never be. Well, what's the point, Paul? What's up? By their transgression, look at this, salvation has come to the Gentiles. For what reason? To make them, the Jews, jealous. If I just said that, you would say, are you out of your mind? What kind of a Jewish-centered, are you kidding? But that's what it says here. God took the trans, unforgivable transgression of my people and turned it into something really, really good. Salvation offered to the Gentiles. For what purpose? that they, the Gentiles, may make them, the Jews, jealous. Let me tell you something, it works. <laughs> I'm so grateful for the guy who in the military years ago lived the consistent Christian life before me in the midst of a bunch of drunken party animals in the barracks. He was different, set apart, not weird, but different set apart. And there was something about him that so intrigued me after three months of friendship, observing his walk, I finally could contain myself no longer, and I said to him, what makes you tick? That was my deeply spiritual question. What makes you tick? And he said to me, Stuart, this is a good time for me to share with you my story. Okay. And he shared with me his testimony. He didn't call it that because that doesn't make sense to an unbeliever. What do you mean testimony? I don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you about myself, essentially, is what he was saying. And he shared his 
what I now know is called testimony. Three-part, life before Christ, how he came to know Christ, and then how his life has changed since. Simple testimony. He didn't use any special tricks or dramatics or anything like that, just the power of his testimony. And one verse of Scripture, John 10.10, I came to give life and give it abundantly. That's the verse he chose to share with me. That's what he, that's what he did. He shared, and, and I'm so grateful to God for him down to this very day because I'm I, not just here, which, for which I'm very grateful. I'm in the fold. I'm in the family uh, because, b b because of what he did, uh, because of him sharing the gospel with me. So, so verse 11 works. I can tell you, I shouldn't speak for Harry, but you could read his story in one of the past Sagemont lives. Wonderful story. And, and his beloved, now with the Lord, wife, who uh, I married, I married them, uh, a Gentile lady, uh, lived such a life and was so uh, persuaded that Jesus was Lord uh, that she attracted Harry uh, not only to her but to her church, to her family, and then ultimately to her Lord. So it happens. Most of my people are led to the Lord today by you people. Did you know that? It's not Jews leading other Jews to the Lord. It's mostly Gentiles leading other Jews to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Just through friendship. Friendship. But I'll tell you what doesn't make my people jealous. When, you, when we're called Christ killers, when we're called dirty, penny-pinching Jews, uh, people with big noses, whatever, um, when the Holocaust is denied as being his historical fact, do you know that's taught in a lot of universities today? It's called revisionist uh, history. Uh, by the way, Ahmadinejad, prior leader of Iran, advanced that the Holocaust is just a Jewish scheme. When denominations like the Presbyterian Church, USA, vote to boycott all goods from Israel, when on university campuses, pseudo-intellectuals who think they understand the Middle East situation blame it all on Israel, call Israel an apartheid state, accuse Israel of occupying uh, persecuting, imposing themselves on others, defenseless others. Uh, and when uh, Christians say we are a forsaken people because we have forsaken Jesus, I can tell you that doesn't arouse my people to jealousy. When, when, when you say to Jewish people, you have to accept Jesus, and when you do, you'll no longer be Jewish. Uh, that does not excite us whatsoever. And on and on and on. So one of the reasons why my people remain uh, apart from Christ today is because of the church, which historically has done a rather dismal record 
has a dismal record in reaching out to my people. It's quite fascinating to me at just about every major missions conference sponsored by our denomination and others today, Jewish evangelism is notable by its absence. Very interesting to me. Uh, it, it, reaching out to Muslim people, which I'm very in favor of, and unreached people groups, very in favor of all the rest, really good. What happened <laughs> to Jewish missions and evangelism? What in the world happened? The vast majority of our thousands of Southern Baptist churches, and the reason I say uh, Southern Baptist is because we're a great denomination, let alone the liberal ones, the vast majority of Southern Baptist churches have no involvement in outreach to Jewish people, support no Jewish missions efforts, uh, do no missions outreaches to the Jewish community, are not taking the gospel to Jewish people. It's uh, a violation, it seems to me, not of what I want, but of what God wants. If you read Romans 11, 11, there's no denying the transgression of my people, but God used it as an opportunity to propagate the gospel amongst Gentile people so that Gentile people coming to benefit from the embrace of the Lord Jesus Christ would arouse my people to jealousy. And when Jewish people see what it is to be someone who has a vibrant relationship with Messiah Jesus, I tell you, we want it. We're hungry. We're empty. We don't have peace. When we see you at peace with Almighty God, when we see you with joy, when we see you with expressions of love, we want to say to you, what makes you tick? And then when you share your story in the gospel with us, some of us come, some of us come to faith. I tell you, um, God is still interested in reaching out to the Jewish people. No, he hasn't replaced them. Look at verse 12. And uh, how are we doing? Holy Toledo. Okay, I will hurry. Last verse. If their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Can I make a Rothberg dogmatic statement? It seems to me the key to successfully fulfilling the Great Commission is to make Jewish evangelism a priority. Isn't that a dogmatic statement? But I can support it by Scripture. If we don't have evidence of the people group to whom God uh, uh, imparted Himself first and most thoroughly, if we don't have evidence of them by His grace coming to know Him, in many ways, we're wasting our words with others. If he has forsaken the Jews, <laughs> you know how serious this is? It denigrates his character. How can any people group feel secure with the God of the Bible and his promises if he hasn't managed to fulfill his promises to the Jews? Can you see? If God has replaced the Jews, when is he going to replace the church? Uh, uh, my people have a history filled with transgression, and so does the church. If you study church history, my heavens, you'll think it's some crazy soap opera on TV. We haven't done all that well, but God does not forsake or reject those whom He has entered into a relationship with. 
the church of Jesus Christ is secure, not because they're any better than anybody, but because of the it's all of grace, and so too with the Jews. So it appears to me from verse 12, God has a future plan for the Jews, but how could he have a future plan for the Jews if the Jews have no future? <laughs> this is just logic to me. And so what's called replacement, it's called replacement theology, and also, here's a good one, it's called supersessionism, meaning the church has superseded Israel. And now they have a more euphemistic term today called fulfillment theology. And it's, they say it's not so much that God has replaced Israel, it's just that God has passed through Israel to the ultimate fulfillment of all of His promises through spiritual Israel, the church. So all the promises made to Israel have been forfeited by Israel, but now have been inherited by the church. Folks, how do you explain Romans? How do you explain Revelation? How? How do you, <clears throat> I will never leave you or forsake you. How do you explain that? How do you explain the promises of God in Jeremiah? The, you know, the sun will go out of existence before I give up on you. How do you explain the verse we looked at last week, uh, Romans uh, chapter 10, verse 21, they are a disobedient and obstinate people, but God says, yet all day long I have stretched out my hand to them. It doesn't look like God is shaking his fist at Israel. It looks like, like a grieving father whose son has gone astray. He's extending his hand, inviting that son to, to come home. Folks, it's dangerous. It's dangerous not to be right about God's response to the Jews. Dangerous. And I, I, I must tell you, I'm so grateful. This woman in the, in the uh, video, I'm sure, is so grateful for her Gentile Christian friend who invited her uh, to church. And I'm so grateful, and I mentioned to you, to the person who led me to the Lord. His name is Mark Santo Stefano. In Italian, it means Saint Stephen. And I ended up calling him Guido, which is Italian for guide, because he guided me to the giver of eternal life. And I am so grateful that he, di he didn't see me to be excluded from the gospel. He saw the relevance of the gospel actually being more relevant to me, a Jew, than to anybody else. Why? <laughs> because everything about the gospel is couched in a Jewish context. I mean the very heart of the gospel, the Savior, is Jewish, for crying out loud. If the gospel is not relevant to the Jews, it's not relevant to anyone. Hence, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It has power. It's the power of God to save anyone who believes. And as I mentioned to you somewhat uh, sarcastically last week, most Baptist preachers even end there in the verse, forgetting part B, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Now, I didn't make that up. That's not some Jewish guy's thing. That's what the Bible says. Folks, be careful about being sucked into replacement theology. It 
calls into question the character of God. And what assurance could you have that He'll keep His promises to you of eternal life if He hasn't been able to keep His promises to the Jewish people? We Jews who are part of the, this blessed remnant are so grateful for Gentile believers who have patiently uh, gone with us, established a relationship, just been friends and been patient and started praying for us and then shared truth with us in the context of a friendship. We're so grateful for what they have done. And uh, if you have Jewish friends who you'd like to see saved, I want to commend to you a resource in our bookstore. It's this one, very uncomplicated booklet, a how-to Introduce Your Jewish Friends to the Messiah. It's written by a wonderful missions group called Chosen People Ministries. Uh, this is available in our bookstore. We have a section called Jewish Foundations. And if you go to the Jewish Foundations section, there are a few of these there. If more of you are interested in them, then we have in the bookstore simply say, can you order one for me? And they will and can get it in quick time. This is a good start on figuring out how, if God gives you the opportunity to share with a Jewish friend, this is a good start in uh, getting some pointers on, on how to do it. And thank you, those of you who have fulfilled Romans 11.11 and who are arousing even today my people to jealousy by living the joyous and victorious, distinctively holy Christian life without compromise in front of us. We are seeing in you what our rabbis cannot offer. We're seeing in you what the law cannot accomplish for us. We're seeing in you what politicians in spite of their promises, cannot give us. We're seeing in you uh, the reality of a personal Savior who is the one to believe in, and we're seeing in you the possibility of also coming to know that Savior. So thank you uh, much. Don't give up on any people group the Lord has not given up on, and He has given up on no people group. No people group, neither must we. We must be patient and be willing to extend our hands to every people group all the day long, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for using all things for the good, even the dastardly deeds of my people. Even the uncircumcised hearts of my people, even the stiff necks of my people, even the idolatry and pride and arrogance of my people, transgressions. Thank you for using Jewish transgression as an opportunity for Gentile salvation and then going full circle, using Gentile salvation to arouse Jewish jealousy that we might be saved. What a remarkable plan. Hence, the closing words of Romans 11. Who can fathom the depths of the wisdom and wonders of Almighty God? 
Thank you for being intent on saving all those who wish to be saved. Please enable us to burn just as hot, white hot, with evangelistic interest, just as you have. You who desire for none to perish, but for all to be saved. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.